Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you for being the almighty, sovereign God who is on his throne. Lord, thank you for the study this week. I just ask that through this lecture, we will see you and you only. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's get going. Quite often, people have created in their minds an idea of who God is and what heaven is like. Sadly, many people today have put together their own thoughts and ideas of God and heaven without ever looking into God's word, being influenced instead by what they've heard others say, or by movies they have seen, or by what they've read out of a book, or off the internet. When this approach is used, it can result not only in a wrong view of God, but also a lack of heartfelt worship of him for who he truly is. You may be sitting here thinking I am referring to unbelievers only, but sadly, even Christians are guilty of neglecting the word of God in this area. I've been shocked at the number of Christians who have flocked to unbiblical books to gain insight into this subject. When we have in the chapters we're studying this week, God's very own words on heaven. We are warned not to add to or take away from this book. So why would we look anywhere else for our understanding of God and his throne in heaven and Jesus and his majesty and worthiness as the lamb who was slain? The only picture of heaven we need is given to us by God himself through his word. We do not need to look anywhere else. I want to encourage you to put away any false ideas you may have gained from outside sources and truly dig into the only reliable source we have, God's holy word. In our study this week, we have been given a picture of the wonder and awe of our sovereign God seated on his throne and of the lamb who was slain for sinners and the worship which surrounds them. As we work our way through these chapters, my prayer is that we will all walk away with hearts filled with awe and wonder and thankfulness to our God and Savior, which will in turn result in the praise and worship to him. In chapter one of Revelation, we were given a basic three-part outline for the whole book in verse 19, where John is told to write therefore the things you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. We studied the things you have seen in chapter 1 with the vision of the glorified Christ. In chapters 2 and 3, we learned about those that are and the messages to the churches. And now, beginning in chapter 4 and throughout the remainder of the book, we have the third part of the outline and those things that are to take place after this. In this lesson, we will discuss the first two chapters of the things that are to take place. There is so much for us to study and focus our attention on in these two chapters. But for today, I think it's necessary to focus on setting the stage for what will take place in the remainder of Revelation. God is giving us a picture of heaven and what is occurring there before his judgment is poured out on the earth and ultimately establishes his eternal kingdom. There are many things that John sees in this vision in heaven that are difficult for us to fully comprehend. 
But my prayer is that the details given will not result in us losing sight of the significance of the scene that is being described here for our, of our sovereign God who is worthy of our praise. As John MacArthur says, and I quote, it's impossible to ignore the fact that John is describing a scene of breathtaking grandeur and dazzling beauty, a glory that far surpasses the limits of human language. John is painting a big picture that portrays heaven as a bright, colorful realm of inexpressible splendor and delight. Again, let's not get so caught up in trying to read meaning into the symbols that we miss that rather obvious point, end of quote. So the outline for this lecture is very simple. Chapter four focuses on worshiping our worthy God, and chapter five is worshiping our worthy Savior. Chapter four opens with the setting of our study today, heaven. In verse 1 we read, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. This voice that John heard is the same commanding voice from chapter 1, which told him to write down what he sees and send it to the seven churches. This voice commands him to come up, and he will be shown the things which must take place. When referring to the things that must take place, one commentator I read put it, the time has arrived to deal with what God has destined for the future. The events to be predicted are not just probable, they are fixed and certain because they are the outworking of God's will. Underlying every prophecy is the reality of God's hand in history. These predictions are not designed to satisfy human curiosity about the future, but to remind mankind of who is in control. End of quote. Next, John was very quickly taken up in the spirit into the throne room of God, where he is given an incredible view of this heavenly scene. He begins his description of what he saw with, Behold, a throne in heaven and one seated on the throne. Have you ever walked into a room and had your eye drawn to one thing in that room? I think that designers call this the focal point. Well, the focal point of this vision of John's is the throne and the one seated on the throne. This is where our mind's eye is immediately taken by John. He begins painting a picture for us in what he saw, and he is describing these things to the best of his human ability. Everything that John sees is given in reference to its location to the throne. Beginning in verse 2 and throughout this whole section, John uses the prepositional phrases on the throne, around the throne, from the throne, and before the throne to describe the scene and to remind us that the throne of God is the center of everything. John sees one seated on the throne. The combination of the words seated on or upon used by John portrays the activity of God reigning in majesty, not just resting on the throne. This is important to note because God is on his throne and everything that is about to occur in the tribulation period may cause questions as to where he is. Everything that is being revealed to John in the remainder of this book is coming from the throne and the one upon the throne. 
God is sovereign and his plan is unfolding and he is in complete control of all events. John uses two precious stones to describe the appearance of the one sitting on the throne, Jasper and Cornelian. One commentator explained that this description of God on his throne is given in such a way as to portray his glory, not to give a detailed description of his appearance. The first stone, Jasper, is also used in chapter 21, verse 11 of Revelation to describe God's radiant glory. And there it's said to be as clear as crystal. The other stone used in this description is carnelian or sardis, depending upon which version you read. And this is a fiery red stone. The description of clear jasper and fiery red carnelian help us to perceive both God's holiness and his wrath existing simultaneously. God's anger, which is about to be unleashed, is a result of his holiness and his righteous response to man's sinfulness. Next, John tells us that he saw an emerald rainbow around the throne. This bright green bow encircles the throne of God and brings to mind Psalm 89, verse 8, where he says, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. This bow is reminiscent of his rainbow covenant with Noah, which is a colorful display of God's mercy and faithfulness to keep his promises. Given the context of this passage being the things which must take place, it is a good reminder that everything which is about to unfold has been established by God and is not absent of his mercy. With these vivid descriptions of jasper, carnelian, and emerald, John gives us a picture of the gleaming colors emanating from and surrounding the one on the throne in his glory. Ezekiel had a similar vision of God's glory, and he describes it as, And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord." Both Ezekiel's vision and John's vision of God's glory occur before God's wrath is poured out on sinful man. In this colorful array, we see God's holiness, his righteous anger, his faithfulness, and his mercy surrounding him, which would be an important thing to remember given the wrath to come. Next, in his vision, he describes more around the throne as he sees 24 thrones with 24 elders seated on them, all clothed with white with golden crowns on their head. Much debate has taken place over who these elders are. Within the debates, there are two broad views of these 24 elders. One view is that these elders represent men, and a second view is that these elders are angels. Each of these views has three variations, so there is a lot of debate going on. (laughs) Three of the most prevalent views and the reasoning behind them have been given to you in your handout with your lessons, and I suggest that you read those. But let me just say, whichever way you believe, 
It does not interfere with the significance of the description of the brilliance around the throne and the role that the 24 elders have in worship. The next description is given, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. One commentary states that this is a reverent way of saying that the one who sits on the throne is responsible for these things. They proceed from him. This description of thunder and lightning coming from God is similar to the one in Exodus 19, verse 16, at the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. In addition to the numerous Old Testament references of God's thunderous existence, and it reminds us that this throne of God is a throne of judgment. John moves on to tell us that before the throne, there are burning seven torches of fire. The text explains this part of the vision to us. So there is no doubt that the seven torches of fire are the seven spirits of God, which is the same reference used for the Holy Spirit in chapter 1, verse 4, and we will also see it in chapter 5, verse 6. Next in his description before the throne, John says in verse 6, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. This was the best description John could use to convey something that was indescribable. Joe and I were recently on a cruise and I was looking out at the ocean surrounding us and trying to envision what John was describing here. I saw the brightness of the sun being reflected off of the vast ocean and when the ocean is calm, it can almost look like glass. Thinking about the colors John has described here, all reflecting off this sea of glass, must have been an amazing brilliance of flashes of color beyond description. Then John describes what is around the throne on each side. There are four living creatures. These creatures are very similar to the cherubim described in Ezekiel and the seraphim of Isaiah. Each creature is full of eyes in front and behind. John also describes the first like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with the face of a man, and the fourth like an eagle in flight. In addition, after stating that each living creature has six wings, John once again points out these creatures being full of eyes all around, and he adds the word within. This would indicate that the wings of these creatures do not hinder their vision. In fact, Ezekiel's description of similar beings states that their wings have eyes. While not making them omniscient, which is an attribute possessed solely by God, this endowment of visibility does allow for a comprehensive view of their surroundings and signifies a unique visual capability. The meaning behind the remainder of their appearance has created much discussion, yet most scholars agree that these living creatures are an angelic order who possess a special function within the context of revelation of administering divine just justice while also being in constant worship of God on his throne. It is this worship that John moves into next in his vision of heaven. After being given a magnificent display of beauty surrounding the throne, we are now pres presented with a crescendo of worship directed to the one on the throne. First, we are told of the four living creatures who day and night never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. These creatures offer endless praise to God. Their praises focus on three main attributes of God, 
First, his holiness is seen in holy, holy, holy. With this threefold repetition of the word holy, an emphasis is placed on God's separation from sin and his perfect character. Next, we see his omnipotence through the words, the Lord God Almighty. He is the all-powerful, sovereign God. And finally, we see his eternality as he is the one who was and is and is to come. He is the omnipotent, sovereign, holy God who has been on his throne and will always be on his throne. Remember, this is the picture of God in heaven before his wrath is going to be released. He is being worshipped for being holy, perfect, unstained by sin, so even in his wrath, he is holy. It is a holy wrath. He is almighty, omnipotent God who is capable of destroying everything. He has always existed and will always exist. This reference to God as the one who was goes back to the beginning. In the beginning, God. God always was, he is in existence now, and he is to come. Is to come refers to him coming in his kingdom. These four living creatures are worshiping God and not only looking back at him as creator, but they are looking forward also to the day that creation has grown for since the fall and is described in Romans 8.21 as the day creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Next, in this outpouring of praise, John tells us that whenever the four living creatures give honor and thanks to God, which we learned in verse 8 was day and night never ceasing, each time the four living creatures give praise to God on his throne, the 24 elders in utmost surrender and humble adoration fall down and worship the eternal God by voluntarily casting their crowns before the throne while saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Praising God as creator. He is worthy of all glory and honor because he is the creator. The elders are honoring God and acknowledging him as worthy because he created everything. Everything that has breath has its existence because of God. And therefore, everything that has breath should acknowledge him as creator and giver of life. This reminds me of the verses in Romans 1 where it says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Here, before all of the seals are opened, God is being honored and worshiped in heaven as the creator of all, which is his desire for us. Listen closely as I read from Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 20 and 21, and then I'm going to skip down and read verse 25. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Then down in verse 25, it says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. I think it's important for us to remember that what is about to occur in the rest of this book has been warned about, and those who will experience this are without excuse because the Creator has provided enough evidence of His existence through His creation. God's wrath is about to be unleashed on earth, and the scene in heaven is God being worshipped how He should be worshipped, worshipped for who He is, the holy, all-powerful Creator of all, who alone is worthy of all things, all glory and honor and power should be bestowed on him because he created all things. All crowns should be cast at his feet in holy reverence and acknowledgement of who he is. Chapter 4 ends with this song of the elders, and chapter 5 begins with John's observation of the seven-sealed scroll in God's right hand and the seeking of the one who is worthy to open this scroll. This scroll is similar to contracts that were known all over the Middle East in ancient times. The Hebrew document that was most like this scroll would be the title deed. Therefore, many theologians refer to this particular scroll as the title deed to all creation. Yet, this scroll is different from a title deed in that it contains God's judgments, which will fall upon the earth as he takes back what is rightfully his. As John MacArthur puts it, and I quote, So this scroll describes the process by which possession of the universe will be retaken by God through his rightful heir, back from the usurper who took it when paradise was lost in the garden. The scroll, then, is the full account of how the rightful heir will take back what is his through severe wrath and judgment. Next, a mighty angel proclaims, Who is found worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? This question of worthiness implies not just who's capable of opening the scroll, but who is able to carry out all that it contains. Then we are told in verse 3 that, the one and all, that no one in all the universe is found who is worthy. The wording used in the original text describes a chronic condition of complete inability and unworthiness of created beings to perform this task of opening the scroll. So overcome with emotion that the world would stay in an indefinite state of sin because no one could open this scroll at this time, John begins to weep. Then one of the elders says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The elder here is telling John there is no need to cry. Behold, the one who is worthy to open the scroll. He, refu he refers to the one who is worthy as the lion from the tribe of Judah and the root of David, both of these being Old Testament titles for the Messiah. The title lion from the tribe of Judah is derived from Genesis 49, where Judah is the lion-like tribe, and it is prophesied that out of this tribe would come a strong ruler. And the title, the root of David, takes its meaning from Isaiah and refers to the Messiah as being a descendant of David.
Jesus is both the strong lion with the power to destroy all enemies, and he is the rightful king from the line of David. The elder also states that this worthy one has conquered in order to be able to open the scroll and its seven seals. This refers to the victory Jesus had through conquering sin and death by his crucifixion and resurrection. Jesus, the Messiah, conquered and had victory at the cross, and therefore he is the worthy one who is able to open the scroll and carry out all it contained. John should weep no more because God's purposes will not be thwarted. This was God's perfect plan of redemption from the beginning, and it is coming to fruition. Then, between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, John sees not a lion, but a lamb, standing as though it had been slain. We know this is Jesus, the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is not dead. He is standing, yet signs of his death are clearly visible. Jesus is seen here as a lamb because of what the lamb represents. It represents his perfect sacrificial death in the place of sinners. This sacrificial death is what made him worthy. John describes this lamb having seven horns with seven eyes. In the Old Testament, horns were often used to denote power, and here they point to Christ's omnipotence. The lamb also has seven eyes, which are explained as the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The seven spirits of God is the same description of the Holy Spirit that we saw in chapters 1 and 4. In the notation of seven eyes being sent out into all the, the world, we can see the omniscience and omnipresence of the Lamb, in addition to the unique relationship that exists between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Next, John tells us in verse 7 that the Lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. One commentary I read referred to this exchange of the scroll from the Father to the Lamb as fulfilling Revelation 1.1 the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show. He is revealing to John what must take place, what creation has been longing for since the fall, waiting for sin to be obliterated and the curse to be reversed and for Christ to return in victory and ultimately establish his millennial kingdom. This long-awaited time has finally arrived, and this giving of the scroll to the Lamb results in the four living creatures and 24 elders falling down before the Lamb in reverent worship. We're given further details of each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Harps are used throughout Scripture in direct praise and worship of God, and here there is no difference. The golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, is reminiscent of Psalm 141, verse 2, where it says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. Again, there are many opinions over these prayers and the exact saints being referred to here. What we do see is that these prayers of the saints play a role in this magnificent scene of worship in heaven. Something I thought about while reflecting on this is the possibility of these prayers of the saints being those prayers that reflect what Jesus himself taught in Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10, when he said, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, 
Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think about that. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Ladies, what is getting ready to take place in the remainder of the chapters of this book is that very thing. God's kingdom coming and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Our prayers, our worship, and in light of all that is occurring in Israel right now, we should be praying ever more fervently for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done. As part of their reverent worship, they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Adding to the songs of chapter 4, this song is different because it is directed toward the Lamb. It is in this song we see the reason behind the worthiness of the lamb to take the scroll and open its seals. He's worthy because he was slain. This whole song is worshiping Jesus for being the redeemer. Jesus is worthy because of his sacrificial death, which paid the price of redemption for people from all nations. God's holy standard of perfection was met in Jesus when he took on the sins of all those he would save and died on the cross. Death was the rightful payment for their sin, and as a result, Jesus brought them into a right relationship with God and has made them a kingdom and priests to God, and they shall reign on the earth. And for this very reason, Jesus is the worthy lamb. Again, John looks, and instead of telling us what he sees, he says, I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This doxology, including countless angels all adoring Christ, who is not only worthy to open its scroll and its seals, but he is also worthy to be recognized for these seven distinct qualities. Power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. With each and, an emphasis is given to each attribute individually deserving of praise and adoration. One commentator I read explained this praise of Jesus in this way. Quote, When he was on earth, people did not ascribe these things to him. For many of these things he deliberately laid aside in his humiliation. He was born in weakness and he died in weakness, but he is the recipient of all power. He became the poorest of the poor, and yet he owns all the riches of heaven and earth. Men laughed at him and called him a fool, yet he is the very wisdom of God. He shared in the sinless weaknesses of humanity as he hungered, thirsted, and became weary. Today, in glory, he possesses all strength. On earth, he experienced humiliation and shame as sinners ridiculed and reviled him. They laughed at his kingship and attired him in a mock robe, crown, and scepter. But all of that has changed now. He has received all honor and glory. 
Then, this massive outpouring of worship is soon expanded upon and includes every single creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, all declaring to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The praise has been building and building and getting louder and louder. And now finally, this last song of praise being offered in the throne room of God is directed to both him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This exaltation of the attributes of blessing and honor and glory and might is endless. God and Jesus both possess endless blessing and endless honor and endless glory and endless might. Can you imagine what an awesome display of praise and worship this is? The whole universe making this declaration? The thought of every creature exalting God and Jesus brings to mind Philippians 2 verses 10 and 11 where it says, So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. So this is the beginning of the culmination of God's sovereign eternal plan, which unfolds in the chapters to follow. Before God's wrath is unleashed with the opening of the scroll, the scene in heaven is all praise and worship and adoration being given to God, our worthy creator, and to Jesus, our worthy redeemer. Then the end of the chapter, the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. John has given us a full description of everything he saw in heaven. The focal point of the throne and the radiant glory of the one on the throne. The emerald bow around the throne. Jesus the lamb who was slain, surrounded by 24 elders on their thrones. And the four living creatures. Flashes of lightning and rolls of thunder. And the Holy Spirit described as the seven burning torches of fire. All of these brilliant colors emanating from the throne and being reflected off of a sea of glass. Then encompassing this spectacular scene is the increasing number of voices and the escalation of praise to God the Father and the Lamb. With the first song, the four living creatures are lifting praises to God. Then with the second song, the 24 elders sing their praises to God. For the third song, adding together the four living creatures and the 24 elders, there's 28 heavenly beings giving their praises to the Lamb. In the fourth song, there are myriads and myriads of angels proclaiming with a loud praise to the Lamb. And ultimately, with the fifth and final song, every creature, everything that has breath, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, proclaiming blessing and honor and glory and might to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ all exclaiming praise to the worthy creator and the redeemer. John describes it here so beautifully, yet I still struggle to grasp what it's going to be like. Sometimes I am in such awe at the music in our church that it gives me goosebumps. Ladies, what we experience here on earth is just a very small taste of the majestic worship that we will experience in heaven. So after our study this week and with anticipation of the Lord's return, I thought it apropos to end with a song of worship and praise. I, of course, will not be the one leading you in this. <laughs> I asked, and my friend who knows that I can't sing is laughing. I asked Nicole, and 
Nicole and Deborah are going to come up and lead us in singing the Revelation song. And I believe Jamie's going to be playing the piano. Thank you. Thank you, Debbie. Ladies, let's stand and sing together.